Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 39 of Trail Society, brought to you by our friends over at Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Kaylee Hittinger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And you guys both sound excited to say your names as Ooh. always. <laughs> um, I think we've all been, I mean, we've all been through it a little bit over the last week. We've had some illnesses. We've been kind of all over the place. I know, Keely, you are finally, you, I, it doesn't sound like you're coughing anymore. And I'm kind of wondering how, how the health, how the health is going. Yeah. I feel like I now just have the cough if I start to laugh, but, uh, yeah, I was sick for probably like a month. I was sick for like a week before Joshua tree, Joshua tree made it a lot worse. And then I got like the flu and then I had a cough for another week. Um, so I took a lot of time off running completely, um, because it just made the calf worse. My PT um, actually gave me some advice. They were like, you know how like if you have a niggle and you run and the niggle gets worse, probably means you shouldn't run. Like if you have a cough and you run and the cough is worse after, like probably shouldn't run. <laughs> yeah, you're like, now I have bronchitis. Yeah, so, inflammation. It was uh, it was a good forced rest after the Josh Tree run, so it was fine. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I can have normal conversation and can reach all the pitches of my voice mostly. So, <laughs> but they linger this time of year. The cough doesn't go away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Running in the cold is not easy, which we'll talk about more here in a little bit. And then Hillary, I alluded to being sick, but before you were horribly ill earlier this week and we had to postpone recording, you, uh, you were actually in my neck of the woods. You're in Seattle. Yeah. How was that? I know I wanted to be able to get together with you, but, uh, you know, like the, it was a Brooks athlete summit. So they had us kind of like scheduled and left people to see. It was awesome. Um, was very thrilled to be running, um, where there was no snow underneath my feet <laughs> uh, and sea level feels amazing. So yeah, it was great to kind of get out of the Boulder bubble for a bit and, um, meet a lot of new teammates up there. So it was really fun. Yeah, it seems like you had like the road team and the Hansons yeah. Brooks team. It seemed really cool to bring all those little groups together. Yeah, it was actually the first time that they had the in every single team kind of under the same roof. So cool. um like the first time they've ever done it. And like Hansons has been going on for 20 plus years. Like the Brooks Beast has been, you know, a team for I know, 10 or 15 years. So um they've had and like the Brooks Beast is based in Seattle. So um yeah, it was really cool to have everyone there and like all the different disciplines. Um yeah, it's like also just a weird level of intimidation to like walk into a room and there's like this like Olympic 800 meter runner. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> do I even run <laughs> fast? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, fangirling. And they're like, you run way too far. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Oh, yeah. Well, before we dive into news and some running results, because the 2023 calendar has kicked off in just insane fashion. We need to give a shout out to people making this podcast happen. And that is our friends over at Athletic Greens. They make it super easy, right? You're not dropping 50 different supplements around your counters. If you're me, there's just like bottles everywhere. It's not good. It's messy. It's very messy. So, um, you know, this is kind of your one, your one fixed solution for all those needs. And you too can try it. And you can get actually a free one-year supply of immune supporting vitamin D along with that order and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go over to athleticgreens.com slash trail society. Again, that's over at athleticgreens.com slash trail society. They are really, really helping us out. And I think it's just been a nice addition to all of our morning and afternoon routines around here. Yeah. Then I was running out. So it was a good time to get some new yeah. for the new year. Yeah. yeah I was surprised. Surprised when the new box showed up and I was like, heck yeah, we are fully stocked up now. Um, so thanks, thanks to those, those partners over there. And thanks to all of you who have purchased it. Um, it does go a long way in supporting the podcast. 
But now to some news. I and mean, we've got some, I feel like we've got some negative news off the top. And then, I don't know, I feel like it gets a bit more positive after that. But who wants to to take the uh, the most recent kind of doping scandal to, to hit the trail, particularly the trail world, maybe not the ultra world quite as much? Go for it, Hill. Yeah, so... I'm sure people, I mean, at least I, I hope people saw this, but um, there's a doping scandal, um, particularly, I think people maybe recognize this athlete from Sierra Zanal, but Esther Chinsing, and correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so she tested positive back in May at a road race um, and she's from Kenya. And so the Kenyan officials were informed, um, but they didn't do anything about it. I'm a bit confused about this piece. Um if like at that road race, like, did she not have a, uh, like a, like a result? It has, enough? Be, it ha- um, no, it, it has to be enforced. So mm-hmm. the s- sanctions are held up by sport organizations. And so when someone tests positive via a WADA or mm-hmm. USADA style test, um, those results are then turned over, generally speaking to like the U S USA track and field or the Kenyan, the Kenyan national governing body. And then it is up yeah. to them to kind of dole out the sanction. Oh, the punishment. So to see and, if they, that athlete yeah. could compete again. But because trail doesn't fall under anything mm-hmm. or this wild west event, there was there's no one to enforce any sort of restriction. Mm-hmm. And so she was just allowed to continue racing with none of us being privy or aware that she had this positive mm-hmm. test. No, right. Mm-hmm. Would that change if, if, Sears and all was like partnering with WADA? Probably, yeah. More or than likely. What would have to happen? Results, because the race organization themselves, because I mean, it didn't happen at Sears and all, right? If it happened right. at Sears and all, like mm-hmm. the other East African who tested positive this year, then they can publicly sanction the athlete and that can fall down on other results and fall down on their ability to compete mm-hmm. worldwide. Mm-hmm. But so, and, and we are, we're about to talk about this. There are some changes coming to the trail and ultra scene that will... Mm-hmm help some of this and mm-hmm. it's not it's not a hundred percent clear how things are going to work yet but we are actively working incredibly hard on it mm-hmm. um but, but that, then, that's the issue can you dive into a little bit more than what actually can these races do if the test was not positive there yeah so that's the difference between in competition and out of competition testing right so yeah. the generally speaking when you have a positive test and the sanction falls down you're not allowed to compete anymore right. if you retroactively have have a positive test then your results that happened between those two times are subsequently void, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So Sierra's and all, Ultra Pyrenees, all these races actually made public statements voiding her results and her prize money. So like Maude mm-hmm. Matthews mm-hmm. is now the winner of Sierra's and all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a Swiss athlete who finished 31st, was ranked 31st for the Golden Trail World Series, so didn't get to go to Madeira for the finals mm-hmm. um, and missed out on opportunity because of that and publicly has has kind of like you know, just, just said, you know, been upset about it on social media, which I think is entirely her right to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Got it. So it will be generally speaking, there's two forms of testing in competition and out of competition. And I think we're going to do a deep dive podcast on this because mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty nuanced <laughs> yeah. topic. Um, yeah. But generally speaking, which this is a horrible statement to make. If you're good at doping, you shouldn't test positive in competition. Like that's, <laughs> that's bad. That's bad form in the doping world. Um, Anti-doping is really important to have out of competition testing. And that's the big hurdle for trail and ultra is that in competition testing is honestly not that hard for us to get off the ground. Um, We're going to see it this year at UTMB due to the Ironman partnership, actually, because they are WADA compliant. So we Mm -hmm. will have WADA compliant testing at UTMB races. So that will be post-competition testing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it'll generally be the podium plus maybe a random. It depends on how many tests they allocate for that event 
Um, it might only be, it might only be two tests, one and one, it might be the top three. Um, we don't know those details yet. You will also see some of that at golden trail series mm-hmm. races that will be handled by USADA, um, specifically in the U S. Um, I know mammoth trail fest will be, is coordinating with USADA, mm-hmm. um, for in competition, in competition testing at their races. Generally speaking, those testing, that testing is done post competition. Mm-hmm. Um, so in-competition testing falls largely on race organizations to, to be partnered with WADA and USADA and the Adams program, um, which are kind of all the same thing, more or less. Um, yeah. Out-of-competition testing is the thing we have to get off the ground. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be expensive. Yeah, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. But is important. And it is at like the Pro Trail Running Association is working on it in conjunction with people like Jason Coop. And, um, we're talking, going to talk to Charlie Ware, who tried to do this a number of years ago in the U S um, and Tim Tolopson and Nancy Hobbs. So there are people working on this who are well-connected. Um, I'm helping to lead that group with the pro trial running association. So we should, it's not going to be a fast, easy, or quick process. Um, but we are actively working on it really, really hard. So hopefully less and less of this will be happening. Um, public, at least we won't be caught on the back foot which is what yeah. I feel like this yeah. anti-doping sanction yeah. was with us on the yeah. back foot. It'll be really interesting to revisit this in like a couple of months as we see, you know, the more specific guidelines launched by a lot of these race orgs. Cause right now to your point, like it's kind of vague. They're just like, oh, oh we have a lot of guidelines and you're like, cool. That's kind of like the same as when you said you have courts <laughs> guidelines. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah, we understand WADA is definitely a lot better of an org, but if you're just saying you're following the guidelines, but you're not actually showcasing like what you're actually doing, mm-hmm. hard mm-hmm. to know what you're doing. Like, are you doing out of, out of competition testing? Are you doing in competition testing? Yeah. So the, yeah, the races the won't be responsible for out of competition testing that will have to fall on it. a, on a organization. So then courts was doing like a weird hybrid because it was like a weird hybrid and they were also yeah. like going beyond the scope of water saying that people yeah. were doing legal doping by having TUEs, which is a whole rant we've already <laughs> gone down before. But the other thing with the water, like to your point, Keely, if it's still kind of vague, what also is required with that is the athletes to like sign up and be involved in this program. So that also has to happen because there has to be like, you know, especially if it's out of, out of competition testing or in competition testing, like ability of people to show up randomly and, and test you like at your place yeah, of, but of, I think of, of be... residence. I think there's going to be buy-in for that. And the Mm -hmm. idea being that, you know, we'll have to formalize a testing pool, which will probably be based on like ITRA rank. And it'll be, you know, a hundred men and a hundred women based on, based on UTMB index rank or ITRA rank or whatever. And they will, and that might mean you're in the pool and it might mean you're not in the pool. And that's just like, we have to start Mm -hmm. somewhere. Not everyone can be in the testing pool. Um, And then from there, you know, that allocates however X number of random tests throughout the year, X percent of those tests go to people with a UTMB index score above such and such number. The rest go, you know, so most of them go to the high, like the highest performers. The rest go to the kind of that that next tier, um, but it won't be 50 50. It'll probably be skewed like 70% go to the highest tier performers. The rest, the, the 30% go to the, everyone else. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's kind of a behemoth undertaking and it'll co- probably cost. Oh, like 200 to 300 K per year to, to financially run that out of competition Mm -hmm. testing pool. And Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, you can make it a requirement of races, like elites aren't going to come to your race and let this high profile race, unless you are WADA or USADA in competition testing Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, and then I don't think athletes are going to be allowed to turn down being part of this testing pool. If they're asked to be in it type Mm -hmm. of thing Mm -hmm. without it being sketch, but if you have a good organization running it, 
like a reputable res- re- reputation right. and a reputable organization running it, I think it's the buy-in is a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So. Right. And so it's like if WADA is partnering with UTMB and then WADA is requiring you to do out of competition testing and you mm-hmm. fail one of those tests, like then they'll inform the companies or the race orgs that they're working with. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, they'll inform, like they'll inform someone like, you know, if it is the, the lead, you know, the tra- trail runners for anti-doping or part okay. of the pro trail running association, they'll be informed the, okay. that athletes national governing body will be informed. Okay. And generally press releases from there will go out and all those other race orgs okay. will actively. So that. basically until we had this lo- most latest development of the pro trail runner association, we wouldn't have had a governing body to have wanted to deliver the news to. Yeah, we don't have we don't have a unified right? governing body because yeah. it could have okay. gone to ITRA or the World Mountain Running mm-hmm. Association, but they're all they're all distinctly mm-hmm. like under different umbrellas. So it's yeah. just mm-hmm. it's very complicated because we don't have a unified force. Mm-hmm. Got alarms going off in my street. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, we're gonna do a deep dive into this at another date. But that's just kind of like the basis for that conversation has now been laid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. So now we've got movers and shakers. Speaking of Tim Tolson and the Mammoth Trail Fest, we've got some kind of the first, as of recording this, we have some new information about who is signed with who. Um, Kraft being the first to announce, I feel like in a big way that they have brought on Tim Tolson, Arlen Glick, and Mimi um, Kotka, which I think are really great signs for, for Kraft in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. They've signed a lot of good athletes in the past couple of years. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, they, they built the team from basically nothing and mm-hmm. must have been like 2021 to where they are right now. So yeah. it's very, very cool. And then I think Aaron Clark, we believe, has gone to Nike based on what we've seen on social media. There's been no public announcement there, but we do know that they brought on a new team manager, um, which I think is a good a good step as a step in the right direction for that team, having someone responsible for them who that is their main job or at least mm-hmm. like a key focus of their role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a while, it was someone who was so stoked on trail, very but passionate, just overextended. But, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Super and then final announcement that just came out, I think yesterday is that Sarah Alonzo, the incredibly talented young Spanish runner who left um, Solomon after two amazing years in the golden trail world series um, has announced that she's going to ASICS, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really cool and very interesting. Yeah. 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 And the Hemmings are going to Solomon. Yeah, well, and it's interesting. So right. Eli Hemming is going to the kind of global up and coming up and comers team. Mm-hmm. So he's on a global Solomon contract. And then Tabor Hemming is on the North American Solomon team. Oh, so it. distinctions okay. there. They are not yep, in the same yep. program. Got it. Eli Solomon announced a long distance team, a short distance team. No, no big changes there. The people who have announced that they've left have left. Mm-hmm. This is like the global side of Solomon, now led by Vincent Viet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have a small up and coming team that, you know, would have been like Remy Bonet in the past type of thing. Eli Hemming is part of that kind of newcomers cool. team. Nice. Um, and Tabor is on the US, the North American cool. Solomon team. Nice. Very cool. I'm so, excited for them. Power yeah. I'm really excited for them. Yeah. <laughs> Eli, that's a big move for, for Eli. So um, that's, yeah, it, that feels pretty mm-hmm. huge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Year in review, viewership, stats. Keely, I imagine this was you. <laughs> it was me. I was just like looking through a bunch of different, uh, articles and I felt like it was a really good year for women's sports. So I thought we should highlight some of them. Um, just, so these are just some fun facts that I thought were cool, but the 2022 NCAA women's basketball final was the most watched game on ESPN since 2008 men That's or women. 
bonkers. <laughs> That's cool. That is so cool. Um, and then another cool thing was that the women's college world series. So softball actually matched the men's baseball leagues numbers. So <laughs> they have the equal amount of viewership to the men's baseball league for college as well, which is really cool. Um, so I feel like there's just this uptick in all sports of, of viewership, and obviously, like with all the creations of all of these little entities that are funding it, like obviously it's all working and it's trending in the right direction and it's really good it's for the future, right? Like, yeah. Um, and then I feel like the last little tidbit I thought was cool was that the NWSL, so Women's National Women's Soccer League, um, had a 71% increase for the championship game in viewership and they were up on all platforms. So like <laughs> digital every single television station they're viewed on basically all of that was up by 15 to 20% for the entire season. Um, but to, I think Corinne threw this in there, it was like a direct correlation to them investing, you know, 50% of the money into the women's program mm -hmm. by splitting the overall fit with the pot by like 50, 50 between men's and women, um, which is also really cool. I mean, it's huge. It like, it's yeah, like, if you build like, it, they will come, right. Exactly. It's like, if you and give women a, a shot, they will, they will exceed, mm -hmm. like they will exceed your expectations. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like it was pretty obvious this last um, world cup where the men made it to, was it like this, the quarterfinals maybe, or maybe a step before that, but they make a good amount of money for making it to the world cup. And like that now will go 50, 50 women's and men's. And the Women's Just, World Cup is going to be lit. I don't know yeah. if kids are still staying, saying lit, but it's going to be amazing. I like yeah. cannot wait for the Women's World Cup. And I bet the viewership numbers on that are going to be out of this world. Yeah. Yeah. So, I can't wait to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Results. It's results time. Um, but before we dive into Bandera, because I think that's like the hot topic to talk <laughs> about here for sure, um, is because it was amazing and we had live coverage for the first time ever. We need to give a huge shout out to Polish athlete, Dominika Stelmach. She raced Western States last year. We saw her at Black Canyon to get a golden ticket into that race. She is a ballsy racer. She runs really hard off the front, generally speaking. Um, she has now broken the 12 hour world record. Um, and I believe technically, I think they recognize a track and a road world record. It's kind of confusing there, but, um, she eclipsed the either, either the road or the track world record by several miles running 94.841 miles in 12 hours. Wow. And I think she was technically on a hundred mile attempt. Um, and so they're working, they're working to ratify, like, did, did, does this, does this officially qualify because of that? But I, I want to see her and Camille like go at it on the track <laughs> or a timed, a timed event, because that to me is just like, you have to put the more women, the more competitive women we put on a start line like that, mm -hmm. the further these records are going to be pushed because yeah. right now it's just been a one or two standout women here totally. or there by themselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. totally by themselves. So mm -hmm. more, more of this. So yeah. Think about Big's out. backyard, right? right? right. Holy cow. For, that brings the most out of people. Yeah. So we need more of that. So huge, huge shout out. I can't imagine running anywhere near that fast for that long. So <laughs> that's pretty bonkers. Okay. Bandera, did you both watch it? Oh yeah. There's a little bit of some glitchy. It was kind of funny. It, it was awesome to see coverage because I remember last year was nothing. There's um, no cell service out there. Yeah. Like there's exactly. literally no cell service. They so use cool. they use Starlink, right? Yeah. Like, which means that the video footage is like relayed from a Starlink yeah. satellite to a satellite <laughs> and then like back to the studio which we've had to use at the beginning of Western States um, as of last year. And it's like, I'm so impressed that we got any coverage out of there at all. Like it worked, honestly, it worked way better than I was expecting it to. 
Yeah, it was really great to have actually some sort of coverage. It was an awesome race to watch too. It was really cool. Keely, did you see any of it in between all your activities? I did. Yeah, I did watch some of it. I definitely was like refreshing to see <laughs> if anyone was kind of catch Courtney. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I definitely was watching it. It was it was fun. I was really rooting for Amanda to have a, a stellar race. Which, I mean, she did post baby. So freaking cool. The women's body is just incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so speaking, I think we should, let's talk to the women's race real quick. Courtney broke um, Stephanie Howe's 2017 course record when she ran 907 and won outright that year. So first woman to ever go under nine hours, Courtney made it under the nine hour mark by like 20 seconds and finished six overall, like such a baller performance off of what we speculate to be like a month of training. Cause she reportedly took November and I'm using air quotes here for those of you listening off. <laughs> um, and I'm sure she's an active human being. I'm sure she was not sitting on her couch in Leadville, Colorado. Um, but just an, like a quote unquote imperfect Courtney is still like just so insanely good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take it was time. really cool. Yeah. I mean, I think it was really sweet to see someone go under nine hours. Like that is insane. And she's winning by an hour, which is really intimidating for Western States. Right. Like right? that's mm. I th- I've said for the past three years, I think the state's course record is touchable, but like, running that at Bandera and you know, who it already is, is Courtney. Like, it's like, okay, it's definitely within reach, which is so freaking cool. Potentially yeah. even like on a non-ideal weather year, right? Yeah, like 100%. I think. Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. I think personally, like if, the, if, if girls treated it like a little bit more like men and let me clarify, I'm not being sexist. If they came back more than a couple times, I think that the course record could be a little more achievable. Like, I think a lot of women who are crushers at it only come like twice. Mm. And then they're like, eh. whereas like Jim has ran it a ton, you know, I think there's yeah, just well, like a little bit having, more dedication having to some it. Issues. <laughs> totally. But he still kept crushing it. Right. Yeah. Like, so I think, I think it's gettable even in a, in a bad year to your point. Exactly. Um, and I think like Courtney's ran it once now, like experience on that course helps so much. Yeah. One, so, one at really once exciting. and also like, had, like was leading and had to drop due to uh-huh. an injury after mile 80. Um, the second time she ran it, so she's exactly. got a lot of course experience, but then yeah. speaking of course experience at Western States, Nicole Bitter, um, uh-huh. ran an amazing second loop, like yeah. moved from fifth so cool. to second, yeah. um, to secure her golden ticket after being she third at Havilland. Ambitious. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was so, so cool, cool to see. see her. Like she ran so smart. I mean, I think she was like twelfth mm-hmm. or like early on, and like seventh at the end of the first lap. So that was really cool to see her. Yeah, sneak and I, attack. I think honestly, Hilly, that ankle roll she experienced with you in Cape Town was yeah. like a blessing in disguise. She even mentioned that there. She's like, "Well, I needed some time off." She was just like so matter of fact. She's like, "This is a good thing. I'll go on a safari and see a bunch of animals and and help you in your race." I'm like, "Okay, Aww. Nicole." She was yeah. just so sweet. But we I did have a follow-up question about this with like I see your point obviously with like course familiarity and like and breaking records. How many times did Ellie run the course before she got the course record? I, don't I mean, really answer she that. hadn't ran it much. No, she yeah, ran it twice so, I mean, before. I don't think it's necessary, but I do think it does but her help. year, she ran it on a really cold year, the course. Yeah, right. And of so course. Yeah. I think running it beforehand does help. She ran it at least once, if not twice, before she got the course yeah. record. She yeah. won it the year before and then got the course record. So she, she came back, had a really cold year. Again, yeah. not taking anything from Ellie. I just think yeah. course familiarity helps. That's how Jim got it. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I think, but I also think weather plays a huge amount, a huge uh, factor in it too. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But then third, not to be overshadowed here, third place was Kareth Arnold. 
Um, she was paced by Lottie Brinks, who I think is her sister-in-law yeah. and was like her hype woman on camera. It was great. Um, she's a mom, uh, lives in Florida. So really cool to see her, um, finish a, like a solid third, like wasn't that far behind Nicole. And then yeah. obviously Amanda Basham, we mentioned had a super gritty performance and she actually yeah. out sprinted, um, cat Catherine short for fourth and fifth. I think there was 43 seconds between the two of them. So the photos of Amanda at the finish line gave me like all the feelings of yeah. just, like, laying on the ground. It was. It was so cool running. to see her like have a good, have a good one. Her body, like she said, stopped protesting at mile 50 and she ran pretty fast. Like she actually had, I think the second fastest time overall, um, like second fastest, to, including the men for the last, I think 10 miles. So she That's was moving, stupid. she was oh moving really gosh. fast. Um, yeah, and that was really cool. It also was really cool. I know, I don't know what happened to her. I was watching her, um, Cassie Edmond. She like, I mean, Casey, she's Casey Edmond. Yeah, Casey Edmond. She, I've been racing, I was racing her in like sky running and she's like 40, 41, 40. Yeah. So yeah. mother of two, like she's, she's a crusher. I don't know. She was moving really well. I, obviously she, she struggled back, in the second but, loop. Yeah. She, I think yeah, it was the heat, heat maybe. issues, but she's yeah. a total, a total. She's awesome. Badass. Yeah. I'm going to say badass. Cool to she's her. a total badass. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we'll see. I think we'll see Casey um, yeah. back again. She's 2011 world mountain running champion. Like she's mm-hmm. a boss. She's got some legs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And on the men's side, um, fan favorite, free trail fan, fa- fa- fan favorite, Jeff Colt won <laughs> the flu, ran the flu game of his life. You know, he was sick for most of December. Um, mm. and he was so rested. There we go. Cash, yeah. The force, <laughs> the forced panic taper that we yeah. both experienced with him was next level. But he also uh, was so patient. So patient. Like mm-hmm. he ran, he ran. So I talked to him post-race. He had Jonathan, he had John Reyes splits written down mm-hmm. from last year. Mm-hmm. And he ran, he ran John splits for the first lap. Mm-hmm. Um, and was just cool. like, you know, he was like, he's like, I made up like so much time in this one little six mile section because I was like, well, John ran 645 pace here. So I'm going to run 645 pace here. And all of a sudden <laughs> like went from like 13th or 14th, like up to that lead pack at the halfway mark and then didn't look back. So, so, so cool. And then, um, JP, uh, Giblin, who I don't, I'm not super familiar with Boulder, Boulder guy, um, late twenties, second at Leadville, I think was kind of his highlight performance maybe from last year. Um, super solid rocking, like a big ginger beard. Um, <laughs> but yeah, had a great, had a great run, got that golden ticket, really wanted that golden ticket, got to the finish line was very excited about it. <laughs> um, and then early race leader, uh, Canyon Woodward, mm-hmm. um, kind of South, Southeast guy, um, big, like really good in the mountains, like UTMB hellbender, um, has the unsupported record on the scar out, out East, like really good in the mountains. So I imagine this had to feel like a sprint for him, but after leading the first loop, um, he fought back for third, actually, he had fallen back to like fourth, maybe even close to fifth and like fought back for a third place. Yeah. So, yeah. Rock, rock in the no shirts too. We had a lot of shirtless men, uh, in Bandera. So not a good day. I mean, for a squirrels company. nut butter was made one of the title sponsors. So maybe they're just lathering up at the exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else from Bandera that we should touch on? Besides Do you think you would chafe without a shirt on? No, you wouldn't chafe, I think. Yeah, that's thing. what I thought. So you might not even need the nut butter. I know guys need it on their the lower parts, though, I guess. And yeah. men, men, I feel like men have bl- bloody nipple issues, which is but maybe that's a from the shirt. Ne- I know. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking shirtless. like even with but your, if they're not like, wearing the shirt, they don't need it. Men, if you're listening, tell us about armpit chafe and the pros and cons of wearing a shirt. Yeah. 
Please okay, and thanks. Because we don't men. get that luxury. We still have to wear we still have to wear a sports bra that gives you fabric there that could potentially chafe. Yeah. yeah. Chafe, yeah. chafe is everywhere. Um, okay. Before we dive into our meat and potatoes for today, we've got to give a shout out to our other sponsor, who is the feed. I was lamenting before we hit play that my last feed shipment got or hit play, hit record, got uh, got swiped off my front porch. And I'm a little bit sad because there were brand new waffles in there, limited edition flavor mm-hmm. waffles, cookie and cream waffles got swiped <laughs> off my front porch. And I'm sure it was one of you out there listening who thought there must be something tasty in here. So um, enjoy it by yourself, I guess, but I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit sad, but if you also want to try the, feed, on there. the one, the one-stop shop, if you need your cookie and cream waffles, um, they're going to do like kind of a continuing kind of special edition waffle flavor just for the feed. So keep your eyes out. Um, but again, you get a little bit of a benefit, right? You can go to the feed.com slash trail society and you can get a $15 credit to spend on a 30 on, on a $35 order. And if you order over $50, you get free shipping, which I particularly love. Um, and it sounds like actually that you guys can utilize this code four times a year now. So it's going to be $60 for you over the course of the year at the feed.com slash trail society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and I, I got the math on that, right? You right? did. Yes. Yep. It was perfect. <laughs> I was just playing around with it the other day, trying to get a little more specific for the listeners. Cause it's like the credit is not just a standalone. So I was like, let's just mm-hmm. specify for them. But the $50 a product you end up getting for 35 bucks without any shipping. So you get $50 for the price of 35, which is pretty That's sweet. That's really cool. Um, but the cookie and cream waffles were my first adventure <gasps> into waffles. Experience. Oh boy. How was it? It was amazing. I had one this morning <laughs> before my it? run. You toast it? I had no clue what to do. I ate yeah, it. Yeah, you toast normal. it. <laughs> yeah, toast it. You gotta toast it. it. You like in a toaster? Toast yeah. yeah, toaster, toaster oven. I have a toaster oven. Yeah. I have a toaster. I toast never... it. Works just fine. Okay, you yeah. put syrup on it or I no? I actually put probiotic yogurt because you know I'm trying to rework my gut microbiome. But hey, mm. <laughs> 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 it works. <laughs> honey, I mean honey's a good one. Okay, yeah. got it. Right. I mean, it is uh, fine by itself too. So I, I eat it straight I was just up. Confused because I was like, yeah. it's cold, kind of. I don't know what to do. No, 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 no. no it was early. My brain wasn't working. I actually put raisins in my coffee. So I was like, oh, <laughs> eat a waffle. Bad, bad day. Eat the waffles. <laughs> so again, if you want waffles or anything else from the feed, because they do sell a whole heck of a lot of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. recovery products, anything that your heart desires basically is over at the feed.com slash trail society. Meat and potatoes, guys. It's a, a lot warmer here than it was when we decided mm-hmm. that this would be our topic. So bear with us, but we're gonna talk about running in the cold today because it's super, super important. So Hilly, why don't you, why don't you start? Yeah. Off? So, I mean, not too long ago, we had like a pretty big cold snap, I think across the whole U.S. <laughs> um, so for some of us, it was like negative temps, definitely for me here in Colorado. Um, and for others, it was super negative temps. I was just seeing people, like our coach, you know, um, Adam, Corinne and I, our coach um, over in Montana with like, you know, tape on his face to protect from frostbite, <laughs> skiing out in these negative temps. Um, but so there's just many of us in the Northern Hemisphere, like we're training year round, but we have to train in the cold. I'm sure we're going to get more cold snaps um, this winter. It's, it's the winter is young. Um, and so we wanted to talk about, you know, when is it too cold to run and all the things that are unique to running in cold temperatures. Um, so thankfully, Corinne, um, she specialized in this area during her honors thesis. So we get to pick her brain today. 
Yeah. I think people was like, so just like a little bit of background for you guys. Yeah. Like, I think when people think of like exercising in the cold, we like forget about it in the ultra running space a lot because we generally race in the spring and summer and fall months where we worry about heat and altitude and all those kind of crazy things. Um, I come from the world of Nordic skiing. Originally, I grew up in the Midwest where we routinely had cold days. We weren't allowed to go to school because it was too cold outside. Mm-hmm. And so, um, during my um, undergraduate degree at Montana State, I actually worked with the, the Montana State ski team and studied cold exposure, specifically on lung health and cold exposure. And it's been something that I've been fascinated about um, ever since because winter sport athletes have a huge uptick in what used to be just referred to as exercise asthma or exercise induced asthma, but really it's just an exercise induced bronchioconstriction because it's not. Mm clinically it's not really asthma it's kind of its own its own thing but i was fascinated by it so studied it in in college and now that ultra running is really a very year-round sport we train for it year-round some of us have to race in the middle of the winter because we're going to places like madeira or trans grand canaria um so all of a sudden we're exposed to this a lot more and we overlap with those extreme cold temperatures um, more regularly than we might have in the past so i think it's really important to like continue to dive into this topic yeah. So, I mean, why do we care, Corinne? Why, why is should air, we care? Why is cold air dangerous or why can't why? it be dangerous? Yeah. So running in the cold, akin to running in the smoke, isn't going to make you tougher or stronger. Um, it's really kind of important to kind of think about what you're doing and what are the long-term consequences of it. Um, and obviously that can be harder when you're in a very long cold snap where it might be very, very cold for weeks on end and you can make adjustments from there. But essentially cold air is dry air. So air that is like negative four degrees Fahrenheit or negative 20 degrees Celsius. And I'm going to try to use Fahrenheit and Celsius through this in case you're listening from somewhere else um, outside of outside of the U.S. Um, but essentially negative four degree Fahrenheit air holds 99% less water than 32 degrees Fahrenheit air or zero degrees. So it's very, very dry and dry air actually is what is the biggest stressor. So people actually in like high altitude um, mountain ultras can experience this exact same thing because the air is dry and there's generally like particulate matter in the air. So essentially you stress your airway and your airway is this really funky thing in which it's kind of a liquid, it's got a liquid surface membrane and that naturally evaporates a little when you're breathing, when you're ventilating hard, but when you're running or skiing or exercising for an extended period of time and ventilating more and more and more, you move, like you lose more and more of that liquid. It dries it more and more and you can't actually compensate for it super well. And so essentially um, you can't, like you can't adapt for it. It dries it out. It causes this like histamine response and that the histamine response causes mucus and constriction and all these kinds of things, like kind of a negative, a cascade of negative effects. But um, yeah, it's really, it's really the dry air and cold air is dry air. Um, but it is worse, even worse when you live in a place like Colorado, because Mm -hmm. naturally the humidity is really low, even at higher temperatures. And then I think the other point to that is that like, normally when you stress something like a muscle, it gets stronger and that doesn't actually happen Mm. with your lungs. When you, when you have this chronic stress over and over again, remodeling takes place, but it's actually not a positive remodeling. Mm. It's like a thickening of that airway. Mm. This is the surface area of them, right? Yeah, basically it makes, it makes that construction more, more prevalent and it makes it more reactive over time, which sounds really terrifying. And I don't want to be like a fear monger here because that can definitely happen, but it's like, not everyone is going to be as reactive. We can talk about kind of like, you know, when, when you might be experiencing that and if you might be more susceptible to it, for example. 
Yeah. So I think, I mean, for me, I mean, it's, uh, this is the guideline that I, that I need to abide by. And I do abide by in, in, in training out here in Colorado, because like you said, it is, we already have dryer. I mean, I, sometimes I even notice this, even if it's just like that hot dryer in the summer and you guys can go back and listen to our heat adaption episode <laughs> um, that Corinne explained, explained to us before, but what are the guidelines with like safe exercise outside in the cold? Yeah. Like, what are these thresholds? Yeah. And there's no, there's no good thresholds really. We're kind of like working on this. There's actually a really good researcher out of Edmonton, um, Alberta, who, who has studied this a lot. Um, and so these kind of come from, from him and essentially like we use negative four degrees Fahrenheit or negative 20 degrees Celsius in like all anything that's sanctioned by the, the international ski federation or FIS. Um, so you can't race below those temperatures. And essentially that honestly more aims to protect from things, protect from things like frostbite or frost nip or frozen corneas, um, all those other kind of fun things or hypothermia mm. in general, but for internal structures, um, it's really probably a little bit warmer than that. It's actually probably more close to like five degrees Fahrenheit or negative mm. 15 degrees Celsius is a better threshold when it comes to like, is this damaging is it worth me pushing in this? And again, like that's kind of the nuance there of like, is it worth doing intensity versus is it worth mm-hmm. going easy and slow, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of that. It's a little bit loosey goosey, but I would say, you know, if I, I, I would avoid my outdoor intervals with that five degree kind of thing, right? Like I could probably go low and slow and maybe even shorten my total time outside. But um, I think that five degrees Fahrenheit, negative 15 degrees Celsius is probably a better threshold for monitoring. Like if if I'm going to do threshold or higher intensity Mm -hmm. um, for skiers, your L3 or higher intensity um, (laughs) in that outdoor environment. So really like for runners, like RPE, let's say seven out of 10 or higher. Yeah. And didn't we have that with the Olympics, the winter Olympics and canceling some ski events, particularly cross-country ski events? Yeah, they move it around. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. they literally have thermometers all over the course and based on um, like the, they look at the coldest part of the course and the coldest part of the course can't be below that. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually in studies that they do like repeated sprint studies, they actually saw a decline in post-exercise lung function. So you generally like, Mm -hmm. it's like um, forced expiratory volume over a certain mm. amount of time. So basically breathe in as deep as you can and then breathe out as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw a decrease in those functions, even with intense, even when doing intensity at like 14 degrees Fahrenheit mm-hmm. or negative 10 degrees Celsius. So it's like, mm-hmm. there's diminishing returns as temperature drops. And it's just like, can you exercise at the warmest time of day? So this is like recommendations then, right? Mm-hmm. Like, can you move your exercise inside? particularly if you're doing intensity, can you move your exercise to the warmest time of the day? Mm. That would be ideal. Um, you also like Nordic skiers are so nerdy air trim devices are like kind of, they kind of almost look like an N95. Um, mm-hmm. except they actually have a little mm. filt, like kind of a, they they're designed to stay off your, off your nose and mouth so that they're not like touching your face and making you feel super, super claustrophobic. They kind of look like you're a little bird creature. It's not quite a beak because it's got a flat end. Um, but it's a Scandinavian company. It's called air trim and it's both a, um, a heat and moisture exchange device. So mm-hmm. a lot of skiers will use it when it's really cold, Love um, it. because then they're not like chronically stressing, their lungs. Um, and also another thing too, and, and when I say warm up inside, I don't mean you're going to warm up inside and then do your intensity outside. I mean, there have been studies that show if you start even for an easy run, let's say when it's cold outside, if you start your exercise inside and you get your lungs warmed up and then move outside, that has actually been showed to lessen the 
the chance of like having a constriction episode because your mm-hmm. lungs are like moving, move, like doing, doing what they need to do already. Um, which feels kind of, uh, kind of silly, but mm-hmm. it's been shown to be effective. Nice. You think in just like normal everyday life, like if it's relatively cold, but maybe not like those crazy extremes, like a buff would suffice over the mouth. Like if it's like, you know, maybe in the twenties or something where it's like not in these thresholds that are extreme, but it's still cold. And like it, it can, it's going to help with the heat exchange, but it's not going to help with the moisture exchange. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think if, I don't think it's impossible to do that you will mm-hmm. have like problems if you're trying to wear like glasses or something you will like mm-hmm. fog oh yeah fog up pretty significantly um yeah. and also the buff is often freeze used, yeah the buff is often right. used actually for skin protection not so much for lung protection like it. It up over your nose and mouth is more so to protect you from um frost nip yeah. um Got or it. kind of like that wind burn on sensation that's more the buff is more effective for that but you can also use like dermatone or um if you're mm-hmm. racing in those conditions like kinesio tape style stuff <laughs> i think there's actually a specialized form of kinesio tape that most of like the nordic skiers use um because ripping that stuff off your skin's probably not ideal um <laughs> but yeah they'll um they'll use that to like protect their, their nose mm-hmm. and cheek and earlobes too got it just was trying to think if there's like a easier solution for some yeah but buffs are definitely might just be to take it inside yeah or just like (laughs) or just you know like maybe don't do don't try to do your intensity on the coldest day of the week like i i do that for my skiers like i look at the weather forecast for where they're living um or or my office who live in extreme cold or i know they've got a cold snap coming i'll look at the long-term forecast even and be like hey like your wednesday workout looks like it's gonna be really cold why don't we move that to thursday and do the the easier day on the cold day you can move it inside Mm -hmm. you can shorten it etc like exposure is important there Mm -hmm. and so yeah i mean what happens obviously like there's winter sports right there's uh you know we're we all live in areas where where it gets cold and we're going to be training so besides like moving things inside, like you just mentioned, um, what happens if we do keep exercising in these cold temperatures, or I guess in the case that people don't know these like very cold temperatures, can it cause lasting damage to our lungs? Yeah. So I think that there's a prevalent, there's definitely a prevalence of a higher prevalence of exercise induced bronchioconstriction mm-hmm. in, in winter sports in general. We also actually see it in swimmers, speed skaters, um, triathletes, um, people who are exposed to like particulate matter in general, anything that can Mm. cause an irritant while you're ventilating, but winter sport athletes are like a very hot, it's very prevalent in this population, um, because they're ventilating hard and cold temperatures regularly. So lots of, lots of inhalers out there in that population. And that is because right. Once again, it's a thing where it's like, when you do this thing over and over and over again, your body mal adapts to it. And once again, everyone has a different level of sensitivity to it. Um, people who already have asthma, this is, they're definitely gonna be more sensitive to it. Um, you know, IE, there's no real reason why, you know, I might not have exercise induced bronchioconstriction, but one of my teammates on the ski team does. And there's, we don't really quite understand why one person might be more susceptible to it than someone else. But essentially, again, you know, you've got, you've got that drying and that osmotic, it's an osmotic shift, essentially like fluid has been moved off that surface. And so fluid has to be pulled from somewhere else. Um, causing that histamine response. And again, it's progressive. So more exposure over time is makes it, you know, kind of your more, your airways are more reactive. Mm -hmm. So it is a progressive thing. Um, you know, 50% of ski it's seen in 50% of skiers when like in a recent Olympic international Olympic committee paper. Um, and it's in part because like your Mm -hmm. output is super, super high over time. 
Um, and people do it for years and years and years. That being said, when I did this project with the MSU ski team, we did see that they would have a, d- a decline in their forced expiratory volume post post like a race or a hard week of training when there was colder temps, but generally towards the end of the season, they wouldn't necessarily return to baseline. Our study wasn't long enough to see if they returned to, to complete baseline, but they would return closer to mm-hmm. kind of pre-season values over the course of the spring as, as the season eased off and temperatures got warmer. So I don't know that it's like going to continue. Like, I don't think it's like compounding to the point where it's like really, really bad, but you know, you might be a person who gets that post ski or post hard workout. Um, I don't know if you've ever done like a a short hard VO2 max style session and it's been really cold or really dry air. You get that like post-workout cough inside track athletes, right? Those Uh posts, those posts inside track meat coughs that essentially is, is, you know, one of those events essentially where you have like inflammation, mucus, Mm -hmm. histamine response that doing, doing that over and over and over again could make it more reactive over time. Okay. That makes sense. That's what I I think I complained to you about this after doing the altitude challenge where they have you like Mm -hmm. in a regular room and then that you go into this like simulated 12,000 feet room no yep. warm up, just straight sprinting uphill. And I feel like I got a cough for like a week after. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so essentially, right. Like you had fun. this, you had mm-hmm. like, you dry, you, you know, you like creates really dry, you know, environment <gasps> in your, in your like airway lining, essentially. Yeah, that's not fun. And your body was like, Hey, <laughs> we don't like that when you do it. So yeah. So I like, you know, we call it like, you know, runner's cough, skier's cough, yeah, hockey yeah, hack. Yeah. Um, all is it pretty common too, Corinne, for skiers to have asthma? Like, is it a pretty common? To yeah, to have like an extra induced. Yeah. yeah, so they do. There's lots of tiwis in the in the, yeah, the ski the ski world, hockey world, biathlon world. Mm. Um, but so you're like you're saying that this might could cause it too. Like, it, I mean, it's oh, almost like an asthma yeah, like it's thing. 100%. Yeah. But it could like also cause asthma. Yeah. Essentially, Exercise it's, it's technically yeah. They don't Exercise have, induced asthma. They don't yeah. have like typical clinical asthma it's like this exercise induced right asthma or bronchioconstriction so when they start right. to ventilate um harder they like experience that constriction and oftentimes they don't actually experience it like right away oftentimes it's even like post exercise like they'll they'll get the reaction even like after they right. like once they start to cool down for example um because then you have like that flood of that histamine response um so it's kind of it's kind of a wacky one, but it's definitely very real, and so it's referred to in a bunch of different ways. But essentially, exercise induced bronchioconstriction is exercise induced asthma, and it's not fun. Mm. <laughs> Don't do it; it hurts. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's like any. So, are there any tips on how to to like moderate your intensity in the cold? Like, do you start your run super fast in cold temperatures to warm you up or do you kind of ease into it? Or like you said, I mean, you could, if I had a treadmill in my apartment, then maybe I could do that and then go around outside. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, <laughs> I think the best thing, I think the best thing is right. Is to understand, you know, what your personal responsiveness is, is to this, right? Like if you, if you're a person who like, every time you do a hard intensity session, you get that coughing fit afterwards, like that might be something to cue into. And maybe that means mm-hmm. that you've got to move your intensity inside or mm-hmm. move your intensity to the warmest part of the day, or just don't do it at, under a certain threshold. And maybe your threshold's higher than someone mm-hmm. else. I think kind of the five degree Fahrenheit is like probably good for all of us to follow um, for intensity outside. And then if you're more sensitive, it might be that 15 degree Fahrenheit um, temperature, or that 20 degree Fahrenheit temperature. And I like, it's not fun, but like, I think when you look at long-term lung health, it's mm-hmm. worth prioritizing that over a single workout. 
Yeah. Mm. I think I've gotten so soft that I don't think I'll ever have this problem. <laughs> like, I feel like I start all my runs running really fast, but it's like when it's like 35 of Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Probably <laughs> but, not going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that this kind of ties into those other things that happen in the cold. Um, uh-huh. Keely and I had this hilarious back and forth in which I was like, Keely, I think we're going to fix your running on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Cause I feel like the cold also impacts a lot of other things, right? Like, yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I guess like I always start my colder runs again, cold is relative. It's, it's Portland cold, which is like 30 F. So <laughs> take that as, as you will. <laughs> it's cold to me, but I always start them pretty fast, especially like on trail or road, just it's so freaking cold. So I start running really quickly, but like sometimes that is like not very good for you, obviously. And I find that like when you get really wet and you're running pretty fast, like your feet can start to go numb, all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff can kind of go on. Yeah. Um, and Let's even if I start it. running really fast, yeah, I'll get in the shower afterwards and be in the shower for like an hour because I'm just so cold. Yeah. Um, and like I've heard about so many crazy frostbite stories and everything like that. And so, like, what kind of stuff can happen on that regard? Because obviously it feels like kind of silly to talk about, but I feel like it's really common. are important. Yeah. Yeah. And Uh it's like, I think a lot of it comes down to like, like layering and thermoregulation is really important. And so the biggest concerns, right, are like frostbite versus frost nip. And hopefully you guys aren't, I don't know, doing any mountain expeditions where frostbite really becomes an issue. Um, And again, that's like, important to note, like, where is that most common, right? Your toes, your fingers, your nose, your ears. Um, because in order to keep you warm, your body vasoconstricts and it sends all the blood to your core to keep you nice and warm, like uh, like the exact opposite of what happens in the summer, right? Where you vasodilate to send all the blood to your skin surface to dissipate heat. And what happens though, is that those zones don't have blood flow and they get really, really cold. Um, and they can develop frost nip and then progressively frost bite. Um, I'm hoping most runners have never experienced frostbite because that involves like, you know, can involve like pretty serious, like medical complications, um, including like losing digits. So hopefully no one that's listening has gotten close to this, but you can get frost nip and you can get, you know, real redness or kind of like low key blistering, um, that kind of thing. But you can, I think you can avoid it. Right. And you can do things like help, like be thoughtful with thermoregulation, you know? So this sounds horrible, but I know when I get out of my car and I'm a little bit cold, or if I feel a little bit like I'm I'm kind of like uncomfortably cold, like I could put that extra jacket on. Generally speaking, that means I'm actually the right, the right temperature. And once I get moving, I'll be right. I still have the backup layer in my jacket, particularly Mm -hmm. if I'm in for a a long, long run, because you get hurt or something, you want those layers, but, um, being a little bit cold at the start will be hopefully put you closer to the right amount of layers on. I always opt for like mittens over gloves because having those digits close together allows them to create better heat. You can ball your hands up, et cetera. Those can be really helpful. I always put my watch over my long sleeve because you're minimizing exposed skin. Um, you know, in other sports we can use like cyclists and skiers use boot covers pretty regularly or shoe covers, yeah. which helps mm-hmm. to keep your toes warm. We don't really have that in running. Um, <laughs> Gore-Tex really, shoes? Yeah, <laughs> Gore-Tex shoes maybe. No, probably not. So essentially it's like, like they just don't work. your toes no. are going to get cold potentially. So good wool socks, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily thicker socks, but good, like good wool socks mm-hmm. because they'll move yeah. that moisture off your skin surface. And then you can stick hand warmers to a lot of things. It turns mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So in biathlon, for example, because you need your fingers, you need dexterity to shoot a rifle. Um, we'd actually tape hand mm-hmm. warmers to like our wrists. Um, so we tip them to our wrist and then put our, we'd make, or, or even we had like socks that we'd cut little thumb holes into so that we'd make sure that our entire, like lower, like low, 
uh, forearms were covered. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't have any bit of like kind of cold, cold air causing vasoconstriction because you need your fingers. So you can stick, um, you can legitimately stick hand warmers to a lot of things, Mm -hmm. um, including your feet. Um, (laughs) that's, I love that hack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So use them diligently. I actually uh, have friends who, you know, have really struggled with cold hands and they'll bring a pack that's unopened, like on a long run and keep it in their pack. And if their hands get really cold, they'll actually whip them out and put them in their gloves um, so that they have that, have that warmth. Um, Because if you're like me, you experience the screaming barfies pretty regularly, which does not involve, it involves screaming, but it doesn't involve barfing generally speaking, it involves like (laughs) nausea. And that's your um, like circulation being like, going back to those digits that have kind of had that vasoconstriction mm-hmm. and it's that burning fire sensation in your toes oh, or your fingers. Yeah. yeah. I like cry at the beginning of every single mm-hmm. ski tour because of it. Um, so it's got a fun name, the screaming barfies, but once again, like proper layering, um, really, really important wearing wool. I don't love wool cause it's really itchy to me, but like a wool blend of things because wool, um, one like stays warm, even when it's damp and it helps to mm-hmm. really move naturally move, um, moisture off your skin surface. So that goes a long, long way, um, for keeping you warm and keeping you safe as opposed to like cotton, right? A hot dry erase cotton's mm-hmm. great. Cause it keeps that moisture on your skin and helps mm-hmm. with evaporative cooling. No cotton in the cold. Okay. <laughs> no, no cotton, um, things that are wicking, um, mm-hmm. things that stay warm, even when they're damp are a good way to go. And then really thoughtful layering, um, mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. starting a little bit cold, hopefully to aid in that thermoregulation. If you're going for a long run, being cognizant of having maybe an extra layer just as like a, a safety precaution more than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always have like a long layer, even even here, even when it was, um, it's really dry, but for the downhills, because I would mm-hmm. almost like take off kind of a, especially when it was, when it's cold, like taking off kind of a wet layer and then having this dry layer that sometimes I didn't honestly put it in a plastic bag in my pack. And then put that on just so I would stay warm. And this is always the case for gloves. I always bring multiple pairs mm. of gloves so I can kind of tra- change into those um, and have just like a lighter pair. Just no. for ski touring or like biking and stuff for, too? For running, cycling. Oh. And like I even do it for running um, mm. and definitely ski touring too, but um uh, yeah, and but definitely for running sweaty, as well. Right. And you're out there for mm-hmm. a long, long time. If you if you mm. stop even for a second, you get really, really chilled. Yeah. It's really yeah. Um, so you have to be smart with that. And I think that the other kind of piece of that puzzle is like is changing immediately when you get done with mm, that exercise. Yeah. You get back to your car, that wet sports mm-hmm. bra has to come off. <laughs> Sorry, guys, this is not an issue yeah. for you. Women, wet sports yeah. bra off. It needs to mm-hmm. come off immediately. Okay. <laughs> I don't care if you brought a dry bra or not, put a dry shirt on, put a jacket on, <laughs> no one's gonna know the difference. Um, but dry clothes on immediately. And I've actually found two, like while the dry top is most critical for me, um, for not getting super chilled. I don't have rain odds, but I do. Mm-hmm. If I get chilled post run, mm-hmm. I get the like horribly white useless fingers mm-hmm. because yeah. your body like overcompensates overcorrects. Then I sit in the shower for an hour to try to warm back up. But also I found that like taking off my getting an even dry bottoms on because mm-hmm. my, that waistband on my short, when it gets really wet or my tights and that's against my skin on a longer drive home where I have to run an errand after my run, for example, Mm -hmm. having that moisture, that wetness, that sweat, like get chilled on my back, my low back. Um, I don't like that either. So oftentimes I'm like fully stripping down in my car at the trailhead. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. off. Socks are off. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. dry clothing right. goes a Bring long a beanie. way. Beanie mm-hmm. also, I feel like puts all the warmth back in your head Yeah, mm-hmm. when you're really cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other tips or tricks for that you guys have found for layering in the cold? I really like vests. Um, cause it's like keeping your, Bring like back your the core. vest. Yeah. yeah like your core warm. Too. It's so nice. And, and this is, this is for 
this is for cycling, um, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for running, mm-hmm. because then I can wear like one base layer, usually like a wool one, and then mm-hmm. keep my hands, my hands and my core warm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I did it for like fun, a cup, like a couple of years ago, like running in like negative five or something. And I wore two pairs of pants, but I was just like, I was I wanted to go out and like, just experience the snow. And like, I didn't go out for very long, but like, yeah, if I'm running like above those, those like stupidly low temperatures, um, a, a vest is where it's at. Yeah. And, actually packing on too many layers gets complicated because you yeah. need, this is why down is the way it is, right? You need loft mm. to create like heat pockets essentially. So if you just have layer over layer over layer over layer, there's no like heat mm-hmm. pocket to like mm-hmm. actually contain that warmth at all. And so mm. you need to create, like, if you have everything smushed down against you, mm-hmm. you're not going to stay as warm as you might otherwise. And synthetic down actually is really nice because it gets wet. It can still, it can still keep you warm. It's still insulative. Mm-hmm. Insulative. That's a good word. <laughs> um, I think one thing we should talk about before we dive, we had our last kind of topic, which is like, just like some reminders about nutrition mm-hmm. in the cold, um, which is kind of like injury, like feeling like injury prone in the cold mm-hmm. or, yeah like that, that kind of thing of like, I don't know, running in the snow sucks Yeah, to be honest. Yeah. Like <laughs> I tell athletes, like, you know, maybe the plan says 80 minutes, but if you're running in the snow, maybe you should cut that yeah. down to 60 minutes because Definitely. you're using all these like little stabilizers constantly. It's yeah. exhausting. Well, yeah, but this so. is also a combination I, I have con- combination <laughs> conversation I have with Adam <laughs> all the time, um, is that we know that, and I don't know if you feel this Keely or Corinne with like ankles and like with your ankle injury, Corinne, I certainly have with mine that I just don't want to add that much stress to my, to the tendons, to like the extra stabilization to, um, I I feel like it takes me a little bit longer to actually warm up like joints and like kind of those problem areas. And it's not worth it for me to run extended hours in the snow. So we just like, we, 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 we pivot, we do other things. We embrace the snow sports, cross train, move things inside or to the road to avoid it. Um, that's been my hack because yeah, I just, I just, I have like a zero if not negative tolerance with snow and ice sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My ankles don't love it either. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I lived in Colorado pre Hillary, uh, yeah. we would always be like, who's going to survive the winter because it's like, <laughs> You know, you still tried to run a lot, but you slowly start realizing like, whoa, this is like way harder, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> just like way more taxing. Cause yeah, my adductors definitely get like super over overworked. And then like, yeah, my feet don't love it either. Um, yeah. I feel like it makes you pronate over, over pronate mm-hmm. a little bit more. Control, and then obviously all those stabilizers are activating and it's just like my feet need, need like a lot of help as it is. They don't, they don't need to run hours and hours in the snow, but right. I say like an hour in the snow is really just fun. Like Corinne and I did a little yeah. snow run when I visited her. I just did oh, it yeah. with my friend, Sarah, like when they're like short and consolidated, I feel like they're super fun, but like long slogs, like no thanks. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not, it's not worth it after a certain point. And I also tell athletes too, like if they've got something like, you know, I call it speed play, you could call it strides or a fart lick or whatever you want to call it. Mm. I'm like, I'm like prioritize good footing. I.e. Mm-hmm. like, I don't want you to go break yourself because you're trying to do 30 second pickups on ice. Like that's totally. not good for anyone. Mm-hmm. So it's like trying to be cognizant of that in the winter of like, you don't have to force it. Right. Like mm-hmm. you can modify, you can like do your strides somewhere else where you might not usually yep. do it because it's, it's a dry surface or you go inside and do it on the treadmill to finish your runoff or something like those little, like yeah. little tricks are important. I have a question for you guys. Mm. What is your threshold for wearing tights? 
Like, what is, do you, do you have, do you have a rule or are you just playing it fast and loose and your knees are just out in the air freezing constantly? I just think that this is an interesting issue because like, um, a lot of like cyclists or, or athletes that I, like, they like all like they'll cover their, their knees and like their extremities, like to kind of protect it. I think it's maybe more from like the wind, right. Oh, yeah. You should protect it. Like you don't want it getting burnt. You don't want it getting like extra cold. I think it's only going to serve you. I don't know. It's, I don't think it's going to make you tougher. So I, but I actually probably would say capris probably more than anything. It has yeah, to be really knee coverage. It's the knee yeah, coverage. knee coverage because I, sometimes I don't like full pants because like they don't always fit me correctly. I feel like they're always sagging, so I just like that's another issue. But <laughs> um, but it, it, I think if it's cold, like below below freezing for sure. I think twenties and below definitely pants. But I think if it's like even thirty degrees, I'll probably wear like capris if it's sunny in 30 like maybe shorts just because it's here in colorado but yeah i would say wow, we're soft i'm the soft. running the running joke in my friend group is that i always wear tights like i'm pretty <laughs> sure since i've been doing so much heat training for states my like internal thermostat is a little off because i wear tights when it's like 50 which is not yeah, great but like is i often, wear tights all the time yeah i would say like 45 or 50 is like oftentimes my like I'm gonna wear tights threshold mm-hmm. and it's just like I don't know I feel like my blood flow is going to my muscles instead of my yeah. instead of my skin yeah. type of thing yeah and I think that's important yeah. but I'll wear I'll wear like a t-shirt and tights at 50 because it's like I get too warm otherwise but I want to keep my leggies warm I want to keep my hammy my hamstrings warm yeah so. <laughs> yeah I've also found uh, I used to make fun of guys for like being really gung-ho about half tights because I never understood them but I have a bunch of like biker length shorts now you know like mm-hmm. longer shorts and they're warmer. So mm-hmm. it's like those, I feel like when it's 50 and I have a workout, I put them on, I feel a little faster, but they're like yeah. a lot warmer than like a split short or a booty short. Yeah. Um, but they don't wear booty knees. shorts. So, you know, no. nope. I can't those wear are... capris because I'm too tall. The capri hits me like mid decal. A hundred percent. I have way too much femur. <laughs> and so all capris hit me like <laughs> oh, at the wrong no, I can't wear capris. <laughs> yeah. I don't wear booty I... shorts. Those are just my, those are my swimsuits now. A seven, a seven, <laughs> I feel like a seven eighth length tight are capris for you and I, Keely. Like yeah, yeah. I love like the seventh eighth type. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's like the like normal right below the calf. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. <laughs> right um, in the middle. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we'll move move on to our final little topic. And that's just like reiterating the importance mm-hmm. of fueling and drinking in the cold. Um, I know yeah, Keely and I were going I back and forth. Yeah, I know I threw this on there because I'm bad at it yeah. and I wanted to hash it out because Corinne has great advice around it. I feel like talking about it makes me more likely to, to do it. <laughs> yeah. So Keely's gonna Keely's gonna layer more effectively because she's always way too sweaty and then gets way too cold. And then we talked a little bit about the need to like your need to eat and drink doesn't go down in the cold. Um, and I think it's really easy to forget your hands are cold. You don't want to fumble around with a gel. Um, you don't feel as sweaty or you don't feel like you're sweating as much. And so you don't want to drink as much. You don't feel the need to drink as much because you're not dying of thirst because it's not 90 degrees outside. But truth be told, you need both both fuel and hydration, basically the same amount you need, you know, in, in more, more temperate environments, you probably, your hydration needs are going to go up as it gets warmer, obviously, and you're sweating more and more, but, um, you know, it's, you don't need less, you don't need less of it in a 60, in a 60 degree run versus a 40 degree run. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really important to emphasize that you still need to do those things. They're still really important to do. Um, you know, and sometimes you have to get creative because like, a soft flask might freeze if you're running and it's super cold or at least the nozzle of it might freeze. So thinking of warm, warm water, I think Keely, that was one of your things, right? It was mm-hmm. like, you like to bring warm liquid with you on these colder yeah. runs. Turns out I'm horrible at 
running with fluid or calories when it's cold, but I'm really good at packing for like different kinds of adventures. So like I went skiing this last weekend and like when I go biking, I always take like a thermos with hot liquid in it. And, you know, by the the end of the ride or the ski, it's like kind of cool, but it's still a lot warmer than the surrounding air. Um, And that's always pleasant, especially like um, one time I took like the goo, I'm not even pitching goo, but like right now, but the goo, like chocolate stuff, I put it in coffee. So I had like a mm. chocolate mocha on my bike ride. It was amazing. And it was hot and it was just so good. Um, but yeah, I don't do that on runs, but I definitely like think about, because like, you know, when it's cold out, you could be burning extra calories to try to stay warm. Mm-hmm. If it's like really, really cold. Like, so you need more calories, but I don't know about you guys, but like sometimes chews and stuff that you normally really like eating are just way too hard. So you yeah. like spend the whole yeah. time who, with your who has like broken, broken, not out. broken their shell. Yeah. yeah. How, who has gotten a goo, a goo chew or oh, it's so or some sort of gummy like stuck in your <laughs> tooth and teeth, yeah. completely frozen? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I tend to like those. Yeah. I, I switch it up. So I try to I try to have more liquid calories just because of because of that, because it can be a little bit more like hard to chew like the gummies that I normally like when it's warm outside. But yeah, I haven't brought warm stuff um, with me running, but I have done it skiing and riding. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do like the warmed up scratch apple cider mix. It's oh, like yeah. a seasonal mm-hmm. mix. It's so good. But yeah, I mean, I guess with running, it's just like right here. Because the other thing is, is like if it gets too cold, like little like nipples on your bottles freeze. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally, totally. You have, to, you have to mix and match a little bit in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would, I would, you know, say that like, you know, again, you're drying your airway liquid, your need for hydration is not going down. Um, You're losing water when you ventilate, essentially. Um, You lose water when you ventilate anytime, but Mm -hmm. it's especially prevalent when air temperature decreases. Mm -hmm. And then I think Keely and I were talking about how like, well, you technically should be able to eat better in the cold because like Mm -hmm. your your demands of your blood flow aren't being shunted away from your stomach like they are in the heat. But for some reason, we just like don't feel like doing it. I think normally it's because my hands are cold and I don't want to mess around with packages. But then I think that that's the key for liquid because then you don't need packages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want, I challenge our audience to to DM us what they find as their like win over the weekend for fueling in the cold. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what I'm going to try really hard to I'll update everyone in two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So let us know, let us know what you're using to fuel and hydrate in the cold, because clearly we do not have the science completely nailed down on that one and are struggling ourselves. So let us know your tips and tricks. Cause some of you train in the cold, 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 and we all train in the medium cold now. Um, Okay. I think we're ready for society slam. Who wants to go first? I can. Okay. Um, so I have, it's kind of like a sort of society slam. It's like a broader society. So there was a new study that was released today posted by, um, Dr. Pritchett, who's the scientist that I'm working on some studies with talking about, um, the female athlete triad and the recognition by collegiate cross-country coaches. And it actually showed an increase of their knowledge um, compared to a lot of studies, you know, published back in 2008, 2013, 2016 era, there were a lot around then that showed like, you know, two X, the amount of coaches now kind of understand at least one of the symptoms, which cool. again, it's not, it's not a great number. Like it's, there's still 30% of coaches that have not heard of the triad, but compare that to closer to 70% in the past, like we're mm-hmm. moving the needle very slightly. So I feel like that's a really good um, trajectory to keep inc- increasing the knowledge. Um, but something that I, that uh, this is why it's a community slam or society slam. Someone reached out to me and was very um, shocked that 
this was still this high. 30% didn't know what the triad was. And they were like, I wonder if there are female athlete triad modules in like USATF um, certifications and all that. And from when I looked at it, like two years ago, there weren't any, but it would be really interesting if anybody knows anything about that to know if there are modules that address this in those trainings. Cause to my knowledge, there are not, but there really, Hmm. there should be. And like, I think faster, the Stanford program, Mm -hmm. I think is working on coach both predominantly athlete education, but Mm -hmm. I think coach education is kind of the secondary tier of, of that need, need for that too. educating parents, educating coaches, Mm -hmm. but super, super interesting. Um, I'm going to go next Hilly. You're going to go last. (laughs) Um, so mine is kind of, um, I talked about this before we hit record. Like we do so many things, we should just record everything. And then you guys can listen to us just talk nonsense. But my society slam is that we've gotten a number of emails over the past couple of weeks um, mostly, mostly involving our diversity and inclusion series, um, kind of some year end reflections from folks and they were, they're all like very thoughtful and wonderful and, um, had great suggestions. And I think it's really easy when you're like, have your head down and you're trying to get these things accomplished and you're in our sport and in society to not feel like you're making like any forward progress. And like, it's like, you wonder if, if we stopped doing this tomorrow, if anyone would care type of thing. And then we get these emails and it's like, oh, okay, like this mattered to this one person or this mattered to this group of humans. Um, and it reminds me that we are doing good things and that it does matter. And we are going to keep doing this because, you know, we, we are providing a value add to the community and hopefully to the broader running, running society as well. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for those of you who have sent out emails or it reminded me to be like, Oh, when I like something that someone does, I should probably thank them or say that I liked it because they probably don't hear it as much as you think they do. So, um, thank you to those who emailed it meant, it meant a lot when I was kind of low, low last week. So thanks guys. Oh, I don't want to go after that one. That's great. You have to. <laughs> And I mean, we were talking about this actually before is like, um, I think maybe it's just like a lower time of year, but I think I'll just do kind of like a community, um, a community shout out because, um, one of my good friends, my training partners, he's having a baby, like literally today, um, they're in the hospital. They went in there last night and I think he's really scared about, um, you know, what training looks like. And like, he's been a pro, you know, triathlon, triathlete, um, like a ex-terra athlete, like he's been just a high achieving athlete his whole life. And so it's like, he's excited, but he's also really terrified. So I keep on trying to like send him um, examples of people who are crushing it as parents. Um, and yeah, it's like a, a really exciting time, but uh, I think it's also can be really scary and like transformative. So um, yeah, just constantly looking for um, excited for him to be a dad. He's going to be a great dad. Um, and then yeah, just, you know, send us uh, inspiration so I can send it to my friend Seth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, the, the moms and dads are crushing it out there and yeah. truly watching you guys do it puts mm-hmm. a, puts a huge smile yeah. on all of our faces. Yeah. So. The, Rachel Drake and Tyler Green tell him to look at their dynamic. Yeah. 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 Right. It's, oh, they're all amazing. Okay. I think on that note, we are going to let you all go for today, but thank you for joining us on another episode of Trail Society. And until next time, we'll see you out on the trail.